You're listening to TIP. We know that markets tend to bounce back and they usually deliver positive returns at the one, three, and five year mark after a steep decline. I don't even know if we're in a steep decline. I mean, we were in a bear market, but we bounced out of it pretty quickly. I'm expecting we could go back down again. We could go back up again. We could stay flat. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that markets will tend to reward investors who weather the ups and downs, stay committed, ignore what's happening. On today's episode, I'm joined by Georgia Lee Hussey. Georgia is a certified financial planner, founder and CEO of Modernist Financial, a B Corp wealth management firm dedicated to helping progressive people structure their wealth around their values. During this episode, I chat with Georgia about the core pillars that make up a financial plan, how to identify what your money story is and how it may be impacting your financial decisions how to build an investment portfolio using an evidence-based approach, what are some of the biggest money mistakes she sees people make, how to remove the emotional aspect from our financial decisions, and so much more. With that, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Georgia as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Georgia Lee Hussey. Georgia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Georgia, it's great to have you here today. So you started a wealth management firm called Modernist Financial. Can you talk a bit about what led you to start your company and what makes it different from other wealth management firms? Sure. So Modernist is a B Corp wealth management firm. And the way we talk about our mission is that we help people structure their wealth around their progressive values. And so really the founding of the firm came from my own history. I was actually an artist before I went into finance, a sculptor and a writer. And so I'm very much inspired by performance art and punk aesthetics and these ideas of making that which does not fit new again in a way that actually fits us more meaningfully and more supportively. And so because of that, one of the things that makes us different is that we love a manifesto around here. So we have a manifesto that guides a lot of our business strategy decisions. And one of the things we talk about is that we're building a new money consciousness with Modernist. We also talk about the last line of the manifesto is we believe in plenty, we believe in enough. And I think those two ideas are very essential to the work that we do. And when I started in the business, I just knew that the financial industry could do better. I thought that the industry was mediocre, quite honestly, in the way that it approached integrity within the work, values. So we aim to walk our talk and how we do business. We're a B Corp, which is extremely unusual in the industry. We're fee only, which means we only get paid by our clients. In addition to that, we don't accept referral fees or kickbacks of any kind, which some fee-only people do, but don't say they do. We're a fiduciary, so we can only consider our clients' interests when we make recommendations. I'm a CFP, which to me is a minimum for anybody who's going to give advice in this business. And then we also practice financial life planning, which is a more integrated way of considering financial decisions that includes 
our humanity in our decision making, who we are as human beings, what is most important to us. And then we do things like donating 3% of our revenue to organizations that are impacting racial wealth inequality because finance and investing markets negatively impact racial wealth equality. So it is important to us that we be part of that solution and we lift up the heroes that are trying to fix these systemic issues. So I think those are big pieces. I think what's also interesting about the firm is that most of our clients are either inheritors, post-sale entrepreneurs, or some retirees. A lot of our clients, just to give you a sense of the kind of folks I work with or we work with, most of our clients are in the, uh, have investable assets of about two and a half to 10 million. They're living very interesting lives and they really want a partner to collaborate with and delegate to who will help them figure out how they make sense of their wealth in a deeply inequitable world. And so that's what we do. And it's super fun. I love everything you mentioned there. And I'm really interested about the piece of who the majority of your clients are. So I've kind of noticed that it seems like over the years with the rise of discount brokerages, it makes investing a lot easier and more accessible to younger people. But it doesn't seem like there's the same trend where younger people are also seeking out financial advisors to help them really make that investment roadmap for themselves. So I know for myself, I've been investing since I was 18, but I really only sat down and made myself a financial plan last year at 25. So I'm just wondering, why do you think people don't prioritize the financial planning aspect as much as the investing part? And then I guess in your experience, what are the major downfalls investors may face later on by not having that more comprehensive plan in place? Yeah. I mean, I'll just ask a question back to you. Did your family have a financial planner? No. Did you know what Wall Street was? Uh, Yes. Yeah. So I think this is the problem. We talk about money and wealth within a context of markets culturally. I think that is the story we tell about wealth. And I think this is a common misunderstanding is that investing is how we get where we want to go. When in reality, it's usually the planning that gets you where you want to go. Investing is just the engine, right? So it's like, it's misconstruing that the engine is actually the car, you know, or the path or the journey more likely. And so I think, you know, I grew up and I never heard of a financial planner before I started researching. I was like, money coach, what is, what is, how do, how do people do this? Because I looked around and my community was deeply underserved around money. And that's when I found about certified financial planners and really was inspired to start my career in the area. So I think that's the main problem. I think what's important about financial planning is that it gives us context for our life decisions and it puts the investment management within a purpose. And what I often hear for folks who are excited about investing is I don't hear a why behind their investing and I don't hear what is done look like. It's sort of like more is more and that's just not true right? There is plenty, there is enough. And defining those things for ourselves are really important because, you know, investing is interesting. I actually don't find investing very interesting, to be honest. I think it's pretty cut and dry to the points you're making about, you know, we we have a lot of evidence about what good investing looks like. I think when it's too exciting, we're not doing it right. There's a boring quality to investing that's really important to cultivate. And I think personally, I find the other questions, the human-based questions more interesting. So what I think can where things can go off track for folks 
is if they don't have a financial plan, they don't really have a reason for what they're doing. So it makes making decisions harder because you don't know what the goal is. You don't know what the context for these decisions is. And in my mind, I kind of think of the the investments are just one of, I don't know, six or seven categories that we need to be intentionally cultivating and focusing on in order to be able to make good choices or not good balanced choices. I really like what you mentioned there because I think that investors need to know their why. Why are they investing? What are they investing for before they even think about what to invest in? And it's often the reverse. We start investing, but then maybe a few years down the road, we figure out why, what we're really trying to fund, which is our future consumption. But there's lots of other reasons. And so I really like what you mentioned there. You also mentioned there's six aspects. So I'm just curious, could you explain briefly what is the difference between an investment plan and then a financial plan? Yeah. So financial planning has, I believe it's six, maybe seven, depends on who you are. So I always start with cash flow. As we say around here, cash is queen and you better take really good care of her because that's what everything is. All the entire plan is based on. That's our savings now and our spending now and in retirement can include things like lending strategies, leverage, things like that. Investments, also an important part of a financial plan. How are we allocated now? How are we expecting to allocate in our retirement? Insurance needs or risk management. I mean, it is way easier to buy a cheap term insurance policy than it is to try and insure against your own passing using cash, for example. Estate planning. Where do you want this money to go when you die? Because you will die. It will happen. Hopefully it will be a very long time. May you be so lucky to grow quite old. May we all be so lucky. But the we have to consider where the money's going. And that, in my mind, naturally flows into generosity planning. What does generosity mean? What does it mean today? What does it mean at our desk? What does it mean in between? And so a lot of that charitable giving planning is important. Tax planning is essential. I'm actually very pro-taxes. I'm a progressive person. I believe in paying my fair share in order to fund an equitable society. And it's a very complex problem-solving project every year, sometimes multiple times a year. So that's a very integral part of the work we do with our clients. And then business strategy. If you own a business, The business's role in your own personal financial plan cannot be overstated. And I feel like a lot of what we end up doing for those clients, those business clients, is really helping to build a bridge between the business and their personal life. And if they need this, they want this in their personal life, it's finally making the business fund that properly. Because normally, most folks with fast-growing businesses just keep reinvesting in the business. And we always joke, you got to throw money over the wall. You got to pretend that money's not there anymore. That becomes the family's money and the business can keep clicking along. So those are the elements of a financial plan. Then we add in financial life planning, which is really taking ideas of behavioral finance, family of origin theory, um, theories of adult learning and saying, how do people actually make decisions? Because... CFP work, certified financial planners, we have all these categories I just mentioned, but then we have humans who are trying to get to make choices and engage in behavioral change likely because you go in to see a financial planner, what's happening right now is likely not what you want to have happen in the end, right? And there's changes that have to happen. So acknowledging that the idea of a rational investor is a complete myth. It's been totally disproven. We are driven by our emotions and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's a thing to be embraced. And that no being self-aware and developing self-awareness about your money stories and the values that guide your decisions makes for better decision-making because it comes from a place of self-awareness. So that's all the planning stuff. And really an investment plan is the structure that we you put in place 
to define the parameters of the portfolio. It's pretty cut and dry. It's not, I mean, it's somewhat interesting because you can look at capital market assumptions if that's your thing. You can understand what potential risk and return is for different asset classes, et cetera. But it's not a thing that moves around and changes usually. Usually you set an investment policy for the next 10 to 20 years. Sure, there are shifts that happen over time, but generally it's not something that changes a ton. So the investment plan is really about building the engine. And then sometimes for our clients, we'll also build some policies around satellite investments. So how much are they investing in satellite holdings? Usually we max out at 5% as a recommendation. So that's crypto, private business loans, impact investments, venture capital. And then how do we integrate the performance of other assets into your long-term plan, businesses, real estate, because they all have values, they all have risk, they all have potential return. And how do you understand those things within your plan? So that's how I define the difference. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, My wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So 
If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. Maybe one way to sum it up is that a financial plan is changing. It changes with the course of your life. It's evolving. But then your investment strategy, like you mentioned, you should have this philosophy that is core to you and it's unique to your risk tolerance, your time horizon, your situation, but it really shouldn't change. And so I think that's a really good distinction and way to think about it. So I also heard you say something in that piece, money stories. Can you tell us what money stories are and how they kind of influence our financial decision making? Oh my, yes. It's one of my favorite topics because when I first got into the business, I was noticing in myself that I could understand the theoretical concepts around money, but my own behavior was diverging from those concepts. I could know what was best, but I couldn't necessarily act on it. And so what I realized was that my decisions were actually grounded in the what I now call my money story. And money stories are the unconscious financial plan we're all operating from. And it's personal, familial, cultural. It helps us understand our habits and behaviors that we evidence because we can look back on our family history. We can see how, you know, what did your mom teach you about money? What did your father teach you about money? What did your mother's mother teach her about money? These, you know, I can go back to my grandparents and see stories that I'm still acting out today. My great, great grandparents, actually. And so that's very interesting and important. It can be historical, religious, these stories that are told to us, but we aren't even aware that they're defining how we can show up in systems of value and resources. Who can control value and resources? Who inherits? Who is told that they can inherit? And then there's generational wealth or lack of generational wealth. Who do we think we can be? in relationship to these concepts. And so what's interesting about this is everybody's is different. And in my experience, in relationships, in partnerships, they're often opposite. And that's so interesting. It could be a a place of conflict or it can be a place of great understanding and a sense of like, oh, I have a tendency to oversave. You have a tendency to spend on experiences. Instead of me calling you bad and you calling me annoying, why don't we just instead learn from the other person's skills and learn to talk about how these differences bring value to the way that we engage around these systems of value together. So I think those are some of the that's the core ideas of it. And um, we have a ton of resources on our website that you can like download tools and download conversation structures so that you can have these conversations with your family and friends to start to dig into these questions. Um, Because I think they are more likely to be driving our investment decisions than alpha or sharp ratios. I have a follow-up question for you about that. How can we identify what our personal money story is? What questions can we ask ourselves to really understand how this personal money story might be influencing our financial decisions and we don't even know it? It really starts with 
awareness building. And some of those questions are the ones I spoke about earlier. What did my mother teach me about money? What did my father teach me about money? When do I feel stressed about money? When did I feel most satisfied in a financial decision I made? It's really wide ranging. When, what do you remember about the first time you earned money? That always gets some fascinating stories happening. Telling stories from the family can be really interesting. So there's a theory of ascending and descending narratives in families and how unhealthy they are. So the ascending narrative is we started with nothing and then we built more and then we built more. And there's this sense of like the being at the end of generations of folks building wealth. This is a very common immigrant story. And then it can be very disconcerting for the current generation because they sort of feel like they're they're stuck on the edge of a cliff because they're scared they're going to be the one that messes it up and they lose everything. So that's not very helpful. The alternate one is, this is very much my family story because I'm from the South and I don't know if you've ever read any William Faulkner, but it's this very strong story of like, we had money once. There is, you know, we were rich once back in the day and we want to get back to being there. And so there's this rather this sense of being at the bottom. It is now your job to like push the boulder up the hill to get back to what once was true. And I think what is more helpful or what the research is showing is more helpful is actually telling stories to ourselves that are complex. That say, you know, my family came to this country and then Uncle Harold bought a factory and it was going really well. And then there was a fire, but then Aunt Irma went and started this side business and then that became really successful and this went well and that went poorly and that went well and that went poorly because that starts to build a sense of self-efficacy that we're capable of overcoming hardship and managing success. And I think that's what a lot of people really at the core, that's what we're doing with clients is helping build a sense of financial self-efficacy that you can manage. You can manage what comes at you and have a plan to support sort of what we know is coming. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here now to your investment strategy. So I was really excited when I saw that you're partnered with the Dimensional Fund Advisors, which for the listeners that don't know, Dimensional is an investment firm that uses an empirical evidence-based investing strategy. I'm a big fan of David Booth, the founder, and he's influenced my personal investing approach a lot. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about why you believe an evidence-based investing approach is best for your clients and just maybe what it is more for those listeners that don't know. So I think the reason we work with Dimensional and we also work with Vanguard and then a firm called Parametric for some values-based stock portfolios. But I think first of all, it's starting with realizing that our expertise is working with individuals. It's not nerding out with spreadsheets and how much Malaysia we need to own and what constitutes a sell signal for a value stock. That's not our expertise. There are people with that expertise and they're called CFAs, not CFPs. So I think it starts with knowing that I'm not going to try to build portfolios and model capital market assumptions if that's not my expertise. So then we go out and we want to hire experts, right? That's one of our primary things to do is why clients hire us. And that's what we do to fulfill all of the various skills that are needed to serve our clients well. And so Dimensional Funds is one of the the folks we use because... Basically, I believe in hiring the biggest nerds I can find, always. Uh, Because, and Dimensional definitely fits that bill. I mean, there are multiple Nobel laureates associated with the organization. Eugene Fama, Robert Merton, Byron Scholes, 
10 French. I mean, there's a ton of them. So that's, you know, good for nerd qualification. And then really what that allows us to do is to lean into what we call planning driven investment management, which to me always starts with evidence based and investment management. In my mind, the investment priorities for an evidence based portfolio are constructed in science and at the appropriate risk exposure. You know, we want to make take on only as much risk as we have to, to meet our goals. And we want to maintain that risk throughout as long a period as we can in the specific asset class we're choosing to invest in. And Dimensional does that very well. We also want to keep costs low. We want to be efficient for tax purposes. We want to diversify as broadly as we can. We want to rely on historic data that, again, goes back to academic research because we're looking for trends that happen over very, very, very long periods of time, not what's happened over the past 10 years or even the past 20 years. We want to be looking at very long term trends. So that's one of the reasons that we use DFA and our investment committee that we hire consistently chooses them, but they go to market every single year looking to make sure that they're the best provider for the particular asset class we're looking to have exposure to. Now, all that being said, I love Dimensional, but because we regularly review it, it's important because we need to always make sure that Dimensional or Vanguard or any of these other managers aren't getting distracted by market forces, right? It can be really compelling to get into a new market because it's interesting or there's a lot of cash net cash flows into those market segments. But what I want to make sure is folks don't go chasing dollars, but instead hew to their own investment philosophy. And that's the other thing I like about the Dimensional. They have a specific philosophy and that's all they do. And that is essential to me. You don't want to see a manager who has like 10 different theories. That's not helpful. I definitely agree with all that. And that's one of the reasons why I love the approach so much. It is completely based on research, science, what has happened in history. And I think that it is very useful for investors to kind of educate themselves on different strategies and ones that are backed by science and research. So one of the core beliefs of evidence-based investing is that outperforming the market is hard. And there's lots of research showing that most active managers tend to underperform the market in the long run, which is very unreliable for someone trying to financial plan. But instead of trying to beat the market by stock picking, evidence-based investing suggests that there are still ways to build portfolios with higher expected returns. So can you speak a bit on what those are and what drives those higher than expected returns? Oh, I think it it always starts with those basic tenants, diversify, keep costs low, manage taxes. It's basically... And then I think the other thing that's important, when we say evidence-based investing, we are also, I think, implicitly saying that we know that active managers have lost the argument. You know, To your point, uh, when you look at... There's a Standard & Poor's study that showed performance between 2009 and 2019, and only 11% of active US stock managers beat the index. So that's taking a gamble, in my opinion, to bet on eleven the 11% of managers that are going to beat the market. So, you know, we're basically, I'm just throwing that out the window. That's not helpful any longer. There's no evidence to support that. So what we do know is that we can rely on diversification. We can rely on a few key factors of additional return. And here's the shorthand I use with clients that I give them as their Basically, they're cocktail banter when they're stuck in a conversation about investing that they don't want to be in. Our clients are not that interested in investing. They're sort of into it, but not that much. I say, just here's the sentence. We buy stock on sale in small companies. Just a little extra. And that's basically what it is. Our portfolios are allocated across all markets, diversified as broadly as possible. And then we buy a little extra stock 
because you don't buy bonds for growth. There's no evidence to support that that works. High yield bonds, just stay away from them. We buy small companies because they're more likely to become big companies. They take some extra risk, but over time, we have seen that they tend to outperform the general market. And then we buy stock on sale or value companies because they tend to eventually, some of them will come back to uh, their fundamental value and they will. we will have made a profit, we can sell them and we can reinvest in the general market. So I think those are the sort of three simple ways of explaining it. And then I think with bonds, it's just keep it as boring as possible. Bonds that are not are really not a place to be excited. So keep the short duration super short, keep it high quality. And if you need cash, keep it in cash. Don't try and invest it. If your time horizon for needing cash is less than five years, you should definitely not be buying stock. And I would question what kind of bonds you should even be purchasing in order to be able to fulfill that cash flow need, right? Because you don't want to take risk you can't, you're not going to be rewarded for. So you mentioned some of the main factor premiums that historically have led to higher than expected returns. You also mentioned diversification as a key aspect. So most of our listeners are based in the US and people tend to have a home country bias and invest mostly in companies in their own country. Can you explain why global stock market diversification is key to an evidence-based strategy and why you think it's important to include in your clients' portfolios? Yeah, happy to. This is actually one of my favorite money stories. I can almost guess the age of the person whose portfolio I'm looking at based on the allocation to US stock because there is a very strong, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's new evidence having younger people also buying primarily US stock. I know it's the easiest one to buy individual stocks. So that can be a reason why you end up owning a lot of US stock because it's the easiest to buy. So the first risk that we take when we don't invest internationally is that we're losing potential future returns from these developing markets, right? Or developed markets. So that's the first issue that I have. I think also, if you look at data, it's very interesting to me, the um, propensity to invest in US markets at the end of one of the strongest returns by the US market. So to me, that's actually when you don't want to be investing in US stock, right? When it's had a really good run is not when you want to buy in. But if you look back from, so 2011 to 2020, 2020, one of the highest returns was the US. In 2001 to 2010, it was the fourth worst performer out of all countries. That was, I remember picking up the Wall Street Journal and it said, the the lost decade. There's no reason. Why are we even investing in US markets anymore? And now the story we're hearing is literally the exact opposite, right? So this is just so interesting the way these stories get told. And then we're not looking at the evidence to confirm that the story is true, to your point earlier. What's interesting is in that period, so 2001 to 2020, US was actually the fifth best performer because these past 10 years have been so positive after Denmark, New Zealand, Australia, and Hong Kong. So were those the other four that you guessed were going to be the ones right to perform well? So the question to me is just diversify. Don't try to guess. You can't guess. You don't know. We don't know. Nobody knows. Just buy across the global markets and you have a higher likelihood of being right. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So I want to move on to some money mistakes. You've been in the financial planning industry for a while, working with a lot of different clients. So what are some of the most common money mistakes that you see people make? So I think we talked about not defining plenty and enough. That's a huge one. I often will talk to people and they're talking to me about their portfolio and I'll be like, yeah, but what are you investing for? And there's sort of a a silence that appears. And I think, well, that's the first mistake. If you don't know what your goal is, it's very hard to align your risk and return with that goal. I think having a very narrow definition of wealth is problematic. I think it keeps us making financial choices that are not supportive of our long-term satisfaction. And I'm playing around with this idea of wealth as having five areas that we need to pay attention to. Money, sure, that's an important one. But I think time, relationships or social capital, skills and mastery, and well-being are the five areas we need to think about. And I think this comes into play when we make money's mistakes like 
taking a job that offers a higher wage, but actually offers us lower amounts of time or removes us from connection with the people we care about or is not helping us grow as thinkers and workers and people who have skills that we're, we're looking to grow or that negatively impacts our well-being or our health or our stress levels. So I think it's very easy in our culture to think that money is the reason we do things and it really should not be the reason we do things. There's usually more, we have more wealth than we acknowledge. And that, you know, that shows up in all kinds of ways, how we value people. So I think that's a big one. The other one I'm really interested in is sort of ungrounded emotional responses to money when it's due to too much financial noise. So the biggest recommendation I say to clients is just turn off the news, go for a walk, have a nice meal with somebody you love. You cannot control anything that's happening out there. What you can control is how you react. And the best way to react to noisy markets is to ignore them. And then I think also, and this sort of relates to the theories of wealth, is understanding what your values are and then making the sort of audacious decision to apply them to the decisions you make. So I think one of the things I see happen for folks is there's this sort of underlying sense of dissatisfaction that is unspoken, but is present in sort of a sense of anxiety they bring into their financial choices. And it's often, so I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody's really worried about climate change at some core level, but their portfolio doesn't reflect that worry. Subconsciously, they may undermine their own investing decision-making because they know they're profiting off of their own anxiety about the future of humanity. So I see that happen a lot. And it's not just investing. It can be tax planning. It can be generosity. It can be a variety of areas. But I think our values have the opportunity to be the most wise guide in how we make choices. And then finally, I'll just say cash, 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 cash all day long. Cash flow is so essential. It is the primary driver of financial plans, how you spend it or don't, how you save it or don't, and the ability to learn how to make projections about the income you're going to need in the future. It's so essential. And it's one of the ways that we're different as a firm is that we teach people how to manage their cash flow. I, you know, I have clients who make $80,000 a month and they're still managing their cash flow. The same way our pro bono clients who make $1,000 a month are managing their cash flow. And so it's this way of understanding how where your money is going. And that, I think, creates so much dissatisfaction or it can create significant satisfaction to understand just where is your money going on a day-to-day basis. That is such a great point. I can say that... Once I started tracking where my money was going, I was able to see where I was making mistakes and where I was spending too much that didn't align with my values. And then it was so easy to be like, I don't actually care about spending $600 a month on a car payment. So I eliminate that. And then, but to some people, maybe that matters to them. So they don't, but then they find something else in their life to eliminate. And you just have to figure out what aligns with your personal values. And it really is liberating because then it makes it so easy to save. So I have a question for you. Why do you think that rational people make these poor financial decisions? I find this question so interesting, Rebecca. I think the basic assumption that there are rational people is there. I've never met one. I have never met a rational financial decision maker in my life. And I think that's part of why the money stories work is so important because the majority of our decisions are emotional and that's not bad. That's just how humans are guide themselves. And I think there's this dominant story that if we just have the right pie chart or Excel spreadsheet, we will know the right choice and we will make the right choice. But what really happens is we know what we want to do and we 
massage the Excel spreadsheet or pie chart to support what we already know we want. And so I think it's all about awareness. If you if we're not aware of what we're how we're moving in the world, what we really want, what we're scared of, what we're anxious of, what we adore and love, it's very hard to make rational choices because it's just we get really distracted by the outside world and we're not driving from our own inner awareness. So in your experience, what are the best ways that we can prevent our emotions from influencing our financial decisions? First, you just have to acknowledge that you can't, that we instead perform preventing our emotions from influencing our decisions. I think we should embrace our emotions and allow them to influence our emotional decisions, but watch it happening. So I think what I find regularly is that Again, this comes back to money stories. I think there's a very, there's sort of a spectrum of financial decision making in my mind. And on one side are the people who save and invest and they are good in our culture. And then on the other side, we have the people who spend and have experiences and they are not good in our financial culture. And in my mind, neither of them are particularly grounded. This person may have a lot more money to spend than they realize that this is actually an anxiously driven behavior of saving and investing more than they absolutely need to. And my experience is folks who overspend also have an anxiety that maybe the future feels tenuous. And they better just enjoy it while they can. Or they saw their parents lose all their money. Or who knows what the story may be. And so really what we're aiming to do is to find a middle way in which we can consciously say, okay, I feel anxious. I feel like I want to save. Oh, my partner is a spender. Maybe we can find a middle ground where like we go on a great date night and we make sure we fund our 401ks or whatever the goals are of the family. That makes a lot of sense. So I have a couple more questions for you. It has been a tough year in the market so far. The S&P 500 index rebounded a bit recently, but it's still sitting about 10% down from the peak. And a lot of investors may have made the mistake of emotionally panic selling at some point along the way down. So can you talk a bit about what the data says typically happens after a steep decline in the markets and why that could have been the worst decision they made? Yeah, I mean, this is actually what worries me about robo-advisors and the rise of low-cost investing and the easy access of technology. Quick, anxious decision-making does not make for a good investor. So the ability to sell it all in the middle of the night is not a good move. One of the biggest values advisors bring, uh, whether they're financial planners or life planners like I am or, or anything else, is basically being a buffer between you and your sell button or buy button for that matter. I've been, I've definitely talked some people out of some like, why are you buying Tesla at the top of the market? No, but we know that markets tend to bounce back. And they usually deliver positive returns at the one, three, and five-year mark after a steep decline. I don't even know if we're in a steep decline. I mean, we were in a bear market, but we bounced out of it pretty quickly. I'm expecting we could go back down again. We could go back up again. We could stay flat. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know that markets will tend to reward investors who weather the ups and downs, stay committed, ignore what's happening. If that means you have to like hide your password to your investment Portfolio, I don't know what you, what needs to happen, but just really resist because it's hard to make up those losses. I also think it's important to think about the language we're using around losses in the market because you've only lost in something in the market if you sold. Markets are just down and that's natural. And I think that's the other piece that I'd like to pull forward is that down markets are normal. Recessions are normal. 
It would be weird if it was summer and harvest all the time. That's not natural. We need winter. We need early spring. We need to digest growth in order to grow again in the next cycle. And so I think that's an, sort of an interesting underlying assumption in the media is that there's something wrong when we're in a down market. What is wrong to me is that we're thinking about markets and not thinking about the people who can't afford food right now. That is really important to me. And so I think there's just a way of reframing for ourselves what's really happening. I have two things I kind of want to follow up with on that. I really liked how you pointed out the market cycles. And I think that really speaks to the importance of why diversification is so important in a portfolio too. Because even if the US stock market is down, it doesn't mean all Asian, European, South American, Australian, everywhere else is down too. In fact, half the time when one is really bad, it's booming in another. And so I think that's kind of an important thing to point out on the diversification aspect. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And that is important to look at the data regularly, because then if you look at what we call a Skittles chart, because it looks like a bunch of Skittles thrown across a, a desk, is you look at different asset classes and their performance over multiple years. We usually look at the 20 year. It's like you cannot guess where real estate is going to end or start. You can't guess where the US market's going to end or start. You just buy it all. Exactly. And then I guess the second thing I kind of want to ask you is that if someone was up in the middle of the night, freaking out that their investment was down, would you say that they just are in a risk inappropriate portfolio? And that if that's the case, maybe they should look to just revisiting their investment portfolio and maybe go into safer assets? I think it's more likely that they need education to understand the context of the moment they're existing within. Because you know, I'm 43. My portfolio is basically 100% stock because I won't need my money for 20 years. It would be riskier for me to be in a 60-40 portfolio than it is for me to be in a high equity portfolio because I have a long time horizon. I have a lot of time to be able to deal with the ups and downs of the market. And I'm going to capture the higher risk as return and then compound it. As I have one client said, I want the pile of bunnies to make more bunnies. That's the job. And so if they're young and feeling that way, then I think it's really important to understand that risk is your friend. And when markets are down, you should buy. If you want to do anything, buy. If you can't make a decision, don't do anything. If you need the money now, then that money should never have been invested in the stock market. It's all about time horizon. It's when do you need the money? We talk about this all the time. So a lot of our clients, for example, that have businesses or high liquidity needs, or they want to buy a house in a certain period of time or invest in a commune. I don't know what they want to do. We often have, they have a retirement portfolio and they have a liquidity portfolio. The retirement might be 75 to 80% stock and the liquidity portfolio is 20% stock. So they're getting some little bit amp up when the markets are going well, but they're not taking as much risk in as they would with their retirement portfolio. Because again, you need to line up the risk of the portfolio with the time horizon. But let's say you're in a situation where you're like, oh, wait, I do need that money to buy a house. And I did put it in stock. I would be like, okay, you're probably going to have to put off buying a house, but don't sell. Put off buying a house, figure out a way to like take care of your own situation, your living situation and wait because it will come back. You just have to be patient. So that's the reallocation I would do is wait. And then when markets come back, then you can reallocate to something that's more appropriate for the risk, the time horizon of risk tolerance. Georgia, that was fantastic. That's all I have for you today. We flew through those questions. 
Thank you so much for joining me. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about your work? Sure. So our the firm itself is on modernistfinancial.com. You'll find on the front page a um, sign up for free tools for the people. That's a bunch of money stories, toolkits, conversation starters for family and friends. Great for taking out to um, for the holidays when they're coming up. It can be a great way to start interesting conversations with the people you care about. Our newsletter is actually really fun. There's always a song about money. We highlight nonprofit leaders that we're really excited about and doing great work in the world. Obviously, we have market updates in there as well. And then you can also follow me or the firm on LinkedIn. And then of course, we're on Instagram. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.